Welcome to Rabbi Michael Whitman's weekly podcast, Mining the Riches of the Parsha, where we discuss, using classic and modern sources, the insights of each Parsha that will make a difference in your life. The Rambam Maimonides wrote his major work called Mishnah Torah, and it's a work of Jewish law. He wrote another work on philosophy called Maranavuchim, Guide to the Perplexed. But Mishnah Torah, this work, is exclusively Jewish law and he sticks to the subject. Maimonides, the Rambam, is very, very organized and logical and everything is in its place. (coughs) And therefore, when we do find a passage in this work that is of a philosophical nature, we have to wonder what it's doing there. So, there is a mitzvah in the Torah, not this week's parsha. There is a mitzvah in the Torah called me'ilah. Me'ilah means misusing something holy. For example, the, the biblical law includes the following scenario. If you have a, at the time when sacrifices were offered in the Beit HaMikdash, in the Holy Temple in Jerusalem, or before that in the Mishkan, the, the sanctuary. So if you have an animal and you designate this animal to be used for a carbon, for a sacrifice, the animal becomes holy. It's an animal that is designated for a holy purpose. If you then make personal use of the animal, let's say it's a cow and you ride on it, or you use it to plow a field, you have violated the prohibition of me'ilah. You have used a holy object for a personal purpose, which you're not allowed to do. The idea of it, the spirit of it, would extend even today Let's say you have uh, some object that has holiness and you use it for a mundane purpose. Let's say you have uh, a nice uh, bag that you hold your tefillin in and the tefillin are holy, so the bag that holds them is holy. And now you want to take the the bag and you want to use it to, uh, I don't know, uh, put your collection of, uh, I don't know, porcelain seashells, something like that. It's not right. It's not right. It's a holy object. And it should not be mistreated. The Rambam, when he records this law, gives the following introduction, which again, I just want to point out, is uncharacteristic of the Rambam to add this kind of a comment. But here's what he says. A person should delve into the laws of the Torah to understand the laws of the Torah as much as possible. But when you find something that you don't understand, don't disregard it. Don't make fun of it. Like, it doesn't make any sense. And How do we know that a person should be careful not to 
make fun of or belittle a mitzvah just because I don't understand it? We learn that from the mitzvah of Me'ilah. Me'ilah is about an object, an animal, an object that has a certain level of holiness and then you treat something that had a higher level of holiness in a secular, in a mundane way. That's wrong. That's the prohibition of Me'ilah. Says the Rambam, how much more so for a mitzvah that God has given us that is already imbued with holiness. We don't have to imbue it. It's already imbued with holiness because Hashem commanded us. How much more so do we have to be careful not to belittle it or disregard it? So the Rambam's lesson says the Rav, Rav Yosef Soloveitchik of Blessed Memory, the Rambam's lesson is really a lesson about this week's Torah portion. Because what happens is we come across something in the Torah, we try to understand it, maybe we understand part of it, but there's part of it that we still do not understand. And at a certain point, we have to realize that there are going to be areas of the Torah and areas of life that we are not going to be able to fully understand. That is what we confront in this week's Torah portion. If you look, please, on page 838. The subject of the beginning of this week's portion of Chukas, page 838, is the subject of the para aduma, the red calf, the red heifer. It is a very strange, bizarre subject. And we're going to talk about it a little bit more tonight. But it's a subject that has inherent contradictions. Let me take a moment just to describe briefly what the Paraduma is about and then we'll refer back to it as we go along. There is a system in Jewish law of Tum'ah, ritual impurity. It is a state that a person can be in. It's not physical. You can't see it. You can't detect it. You can't feel it. And it has very little practical consequence except that a person who is tame, ritually impure, is not allowed to enter the Beit HaMikdash, the Holy Temple. We do not have the Beit HaMikdash today, so it's not practically relevant today. But the system applies. And it's a very big system with lots of structure and details and categories We'll talk a little bit more about that later on. When a person is tame, ritually impure, so how do you get out of that category back to pure, tahar, ritually pure? So there is a procedure that makes use of the para aduma, the red calf. 
And it's a procedure that the beginning of the portion describes. Basically, there are ashes that are produced and the ashes, a little bit of the ashes are added to water and the person has to go through a seven-day period of time and on the third day and on the seventh day they have to appear before a Kohen and the Kohen sprinkles sprinkles a little bit of the water on this person on the third day and the seventh day. On the seventh day, the person also immerses in a mikvah. And then, after the seventh day, they are ritually pure. It is, first of all, for us, it's just bizarre to begin with because we don't live with this, most of us. There are certain internal contradictions. For example, the whole purpose of this ritual is to take a person from impure to pure. However, the Kohen, who is officiating, by doing so, goes from pure to impure. So how is it possible that the ritual that makes someone else pure causes the person who does it, who started out pure, to become impure? It's a conundrum. Our sages tell us that Shlomo HaMelech, King Solomon, the wisest of all men, gave up. He couldn't fathom, he couldn't figure out a logical reason. Okay, I'm not as smart as King Solomon, but I do have an answer to that question, but that's not for tonight. Another time. Look, look. Because I have other material... Another time. Another time. Because I want you to come back. I promise I'll come back. Page 838. This subject is introduced in a very unusual way and all of the commentators ask the question of the introduction. I just want to talk about the introduction. Top of the page, page 838. God spoke to Moshe and Aaron and said, Zos hukas haTorah. This is the law of the Torah, Asher Tziva Hashem Lemar, that God commanded saying, speak to the Jewish people and tell them to take a pure red calf and go through this ritual. And all the commentators ask the following question. The introduction, Zos Chukas HaTorah, seems, the, the, the simple translation of that is, this is the Chok, which means law of the entire Torah. HaTorah, of the entire Torah. As if to say, I mean, this is one of 613 commandments. There are 613 biblical commandments. This is one of them. But it's introduced as if to imply this is the whole Torah. The whole thing is right here. How is it possible that this one mitzvah, I mean, it doesn't, the Torah doesn't describe Shabbos as this is the whole Torah, doesn't describe uh, honoring your parents as the whole Torah, doesn't, and loving your neighbor doesn't describe as the whole Torah. And how is this the whole Torah? In addition, we have a number of words in Hebrew that mean law. Each one has a slightly different connotation. 
we have the word mishpat, which means law. The connotation or the implication of mishpat is a law that has a reasonable basis. Don't steal. Well, I understand. It makes sense to have a law not to steal. Tell the truth. If you're testifying in court, don't swear falsely. I mean, don't ever swell falsely. Just, don't, don't swear falsely ever, right? So it makes sense. Society works better when people are telling the truth. Sometimes. So that's a mishpah. Then we have another category called chok. It's a synonym, law, but it has the implication, a law that does not have a basis that we can reasonably understand. For example, keeping kosher. Why is it that a cow is good and a pig is not good? What, what is, what, what's any better about a cow than a pig? What's any better about, you know, uh, uh, a salmon than a, than a shrimp? Wh- wh- why is it? Okay, you could try to think up answers. That's fine. But the, the bottom line is because God said this is kosher and this is not kosher. God said this is permitted and that's not permitted. God says do it like this whether you understand it or not. One answer to this question of and, and paraduma is the classic textbook example of a hulk because we don't understand it. It doesn't make logical sense to us. I just gave you one of the internal contradictions. There are others. So it's a hulk. This is a category of hulk. But again, we the Torah has the other category also. How can you say this is the whole Torah? One answer is the entire Torah is a chok. We think we understand why God commanded us not to steal or to lie or to commit adultery. We think that those make logical sense. On one level they may make logical sense. But due to the fact that they are given by a, an, a being of infinite intelligence, God, there are infinite reasons and layers of meaning that we will never plumb the depths of. We can understand at a superficial level, but we will never understand it completely. Some mitzvos, we think we understand more than others, but all mitzvos at their root we observe because God said so. And there will be situations that we will not understand. And we are bidden, commanded, to observe laws, God's laws. We like to understand it. It's good to understand it. But our observance is not tied to our understanding and certainly to our agreement. We are bound whether we understand it or not. And therefore, we need to understand about every mitzvah in the Torah, there will always be a deeper layer that we may not be able to understand. So, zos chukas ha-Torah means to say the entire Torah is a chok just like paraduma. Some are more obvious, some are less obvious, but the basic, fundamental reason that we observe is because God said so. 
Now you can ask the question, so why did God say so? What is it supposed to do for me? Well, some are more accessible than others. That's fine. Says Rav Salavajic, a chok is a demonstration of how we relate to God. A chok, the observance of a chok, is a surrender to the principle that God's knowledge is beyond our knowledge. And if we don't accept that God's knowledge is greater than our knowledge, then we're not really observing any part of the Torah the way it is intended. If we don't appreciate that, then we commit the sin of me'ila, of pushing aside mitzvos because we do not understand them. And here's the truth. Every single one of us, every person, has a para aduma in their life. In their personal life, national, communal, national life, global life, every one of us has an area or areas that we just don't understand why it's like that, how it got to be like that. What are we supposed to do? And the portion of Chukas, this Parsha, is an opportunity for us to embrace and to assert that there will be parts of God that we will not understand. There will be parts of the Torah that we will not understand. There will be parts of the world that we will not understand. There will be parts of ourselves that we will not understand. Now, we keep trying. And and we're going to discuss even this subject. There are parts of it that we can discuss and we can try to understand. So we try to keep understanding. I mean, since... Shlomo Amela, King Solomon, said he couldn't figure out. For the last 2,500 years, scholars have been trying to figure it out. But we recognize that when we don't find the answer, it never means that, their answer, that the answer is not there. It simply means that the answer is beyond us at this moment. And the truth is that there's a lot that's beyond us. This is a great quote, Sir Isaac Newton. Just think for a moment of what you know about Sir Isaac Newton. Listen to what he said. I do not know what I may appear to the world, but to myself, I seem to have been only like a boy playing on the seashore and diverting myself in now and then finding a smoother pebble or a prettier shell than ordinary, while the great ocean of truth lay all undiscovered before me. What an amazing quote. Isaac Newton. But that's the, the, the essence of Paraduma, that the great ocean of truth lays undiscovered before us. And, and that, let me just finish this. And that is 
the spiritual work that is called for on this Shabbos. I mean, one of the, the, the themes that, 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 that I hope comes across is that every Shabbos, there is a unique spiritual theme and spiritual goal. And the spiritual goal of this Shabbos is to be able to embrace and to accept and to understand that all of our service to God has elements that are beyond our understanding. Okay. Yes, you want to? That would that would take us a little afield. Let let I want to. Okay, I want to. I'm going to stick to the to the partial. Okay. Now, let's just do. Let me cover just a few of the details. This subject, I mean, we could we could spend uh, three or four years just on this subject. That's about the amount of the Talmud that is devoted to it. We would need more chalun, but <laughs> all right. So an object can become tummy. Ritually impure. And if a person touches the object, the person becomes tummy. It transmits from one thing to another. So if you have an object that is tummy and a person touches it, the person becomes tummy. However, when we say tummy ritually impure, it's not black or white. There are many, many levels. There's this entire hierarchy and structure of different levels. And if a person touches an object and becomes tame, they become tame on the lighter level. The highest level is when a person touches a corpse, a dead body. Person comes into direct contact with a dead body. They become tame, but not just the lower level, that's the, the highest level. Now, in order to become tame by touching an object, you have to touch it. There has to be a physical connection. But when it comes to coming into contact with the dead body, and this is something that does have an application for a Kohen even today, because there are these, some of these laws still apply to a Kohen today, but not to the rest of us. Not only coming into direct contact, but even being in the same structure. Now, the word structure is very, very complicated. I'm not going to go into that because that's at least a year to discuss what that means, what kind of a structure we're talking about. But let's just make it simple. If there was, uh, if you go to Paperman's and you're sitting in the room and across the room is a Nebuch, a person that passed away, and I'm sitting in the chair 100 feet away in the same room, I become tummy. That's why a Kohen, except for certain exceptions, does not sit in that room. So, how come that doesn't if, apply in a, okay, for another question, but I believe how come it doesn't apply in a hospital? Well, it, 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 it does, another, actually. Another time, okay, another time. <laughs> another time. So, um, if the source 
of Tuma was an object, it wouldn't matter if it and I were in the same room unless I touched it. But if the source is a corpse, a, a, human, bo- a human body, then it's even if I'm in the same room without touching. And that is what this portion is about. If you turn, please, to page next page, page 840. Page 840. In the middle of the page, Pasuk number 14. Yudalid. Zos HaTorah. This is the law. Adam ki ohel. A person who passes away in a tent or a dwelling or a structure. Meaning, a dead body is in a structure. Call Haboyla Oel, anyone who comes into the structure, and any object that is in the structure, even though it doesn't come into direct contact, Yitma Shivas Yamin, it achieves the highest level of ritual impurity that there is. Seems kind of strange. Why should a person, which is certainly more holy than an object, a person that is holy maybe should have less impurity. An object is not so important to begin with. Maybe that's more impure. But it's just the opposite. So one of the explanations, this is given by Rabbi Moshe Lichtenstein, but it's mentioned by many others as well, goes like this. What is Tumah? Ritual impurity. Ritual impurity is the state that occurs in the vacuum when holiness leaves. If something is holy and then the holiness is removed, there's a vacuum. And into that vacuum, tum'ah, ritual impurity, occurs. So you have an object. It's not so holy it becomes Tameh, it's a low level of Tumah because it didn't have so much holiness to begin with. And therefore, in order for me to be affected by it, I have to actually touch it. But a person is the highest level of holiness. A person, a human being that has an Ashama, a soul, a, a spiritual being within us. We are part animal, but part angel, right? Part physical but part spiritual. We are the holiest object. When the neshama leaves, when the soul leaves the body, so now you have left behind this physical body that no longer has that spiritual element, that's the greatest vacuum of holiness because it was the highest and now it's taken away. So the level of Tumah is the greatest. The more holy the person or the more holy the object, the greater the level of Tumah when that holiness leaves. Now with that concept, I want to explain, I want to share with you what the Kutzka Rebbe says about explaining a strange law in the Torah. Yes? This, yeah, I understand the timing is very relevant, but today it's very esoteric. It is very esoteric. Can you bring real meat? Like, is there? That's that's the purpose of this evening. That's that's where I'm getting to. That's where I'm getting to. 
it still applies, but it's not so practically relevant, and it's harder for us to understand because we don't have so much to do with it. Okay. Please turn to page 608. It's not our Parsha. Page 608. The Torah says something very strange. And all of the commentators ask this question and there are many different answers to try to understand it. The Torah says, By Yedabar Hashem Moshe Lemar. God says to Moshe, Dabel B'nei Yisrael Lemar, Tell the Jewish people the following law. Ishak ki sazriya v'yolda zachar. If a woman becomes pregnant and gives birth to a boy, a baby boy, the tam'a shivas yamim, she becomes tamay. Hold on. <laughs> tamay, okay, there's nothing moral, there's nothing physical, but it does mean being separated from the, 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 the Beit HaMikdash, separated from holiness. What in the world, how in the world could you apply that to a woman that's just given birth? She just did the biggest mitzvah. How in the world can you assert that a woman, simply by giving birth, number one, it's a natural occurrence, number two, it's a mitzvah, number three, it's a wonderful thing, everyone says mazel tov, and a baby boy, and you're going to have a bris, all these good things. And, if you skip down, she becomes tame for seven days. However, skip down to Pasuk number five, v'im nekei laid, but if she gives birth to a daughter... Double. Two weeks. How is it possible to understand that there should be ritual impurity with something that is bringing holiness into the world? Says the Kotzka Rebbe as follows. The Talmud says, and it's clear from the very beginning of the Torah, that it is God and God alone that can create ex nihilo, something from nothing. In the beginning, God created. And only God is capable of creation. No human being can do what God did to create yesh mi'ayin, something from nothing. Creation ex nihilo. Human being is not capable. But what action in the world is the closest to creating as God created. It's a woman who's giving birth. When a woman is pregnant, a woman at during that stage of her life is at the highest spiritual level of holiness that it is possible for a human being to achieve because it is only at that moment that she is in the process of creating in the manner of God creating. The, the term of pregnancy is the highest level of holiness that exists in the world. And then she gives birth. Okay? Mazel tov. But, but that, that chapter is over. So you have the highest level of holiness and then with the birth Okay, lots of other good things happen. Yes, that's true. But that high spirit, that highest spiritual level, that's over. 
So you have the greatest vacuum. And therefore, Tumah comes in. And that's the reason that we always have to strive for holiness. The, the Pasuk said in a few weeks ago, Kedoshim Tiyu, be holy. Work on becoming holy. You're never static with holiness. You can't be assured that you're going to hold on to it unless you are continually striving for it because it comes and it goes depending on what's going on. Yes? I love your comparison that you just brought us back to here with regard to the birth of a boy and the birth of a girl. Because the moment that someone leaves that room or has been in that room and the soul of the person has left that person then we have a situation where Hosha takes over rather than the or that was there, the darkness. And then your comparison here is rather than say that the that, that, and say why would be why would she be impure for two weeks because of the daughter? It's the opposite. Two weeks because of the fact that not only was she giving life, she had someone in her that will give life. Exactly. As a result, That's exactly it's right. Two weeks because she's impure because there's more darkness in her now. That's than correct. Had with because the it would have been higher. So it's a compliment actually. To that's, what, that's, what her, that's, that's what that's what her that's what her says. Yeah. That's what Rabbi Samson for her says. But that's also why I'm glad that you mentioned that. That's also why. What is the prayer that we say when God forbid someone close to us passes away? Kaddish. Holiness, because that's what we have to do. We have to bring back holiness because it was lost by the passing of that person. Okay. There is a structural problem with this week's Torah portion. Because the beginning of the Parsha discusses this esoteric, strange subject of paraduma and tuma, ritual impurity. And then the Torah goes on to discuss the incident of Moshe hitting the rock instead of speaking to the rock. So, page 842, back to our Parsha, 842. The Jewish people are in the desert. It's actually the last year of the 40 years in the desert. Miriam had died. While they were traveling through the desert, there was a miracle that occurred that a spring of water accompanied them in the merit of Miriam. Once she died, the well dried up. The people were thirsty. And they came to complain to Moshe. And Hashem said to Moshe, go over to the rock and speak to the rock and it will bring forth water. But instead of speaking to the rock, Moshe hit the rock. It did bring forth water, but God was very disappointed and upset with Moshe that Moshe didn't listen to what God said. He hit the rock instead of speaking to the rock. 
And God says, as a result of this, Moshe, you're not going to be the one to lead them into the land of Israel. It will be Yehoshua that you will appoint. He will lead them in. You're not going in. The problem, the structural problem is, what is the, 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 the beginning of the parsha doing here? The beginning of the parsha is not a narrative. This book, the book of Bamidbar, the fourth book of the Torah, is almost all narrative. It's the narrative, the stories of what happened to the Jewish people while they're traveling through the 40 years in the desert. This ritual law about what to do with the dead body and how to become pure, that belonged back in the book of Vayikra, Leviticus, that was the laws of the priesthood and, and purity and impurity and the sacrifices. What is it doing here? So, this answer is also given by Rabbi Soloveitchik. <coughs> and it goes like this. This week's Torah portion, the Parsha of Chukas, is a synopsis in brief of the entire 40 years in the desert. Because what happens? We saw this a couple of weeks ago. The Jewish people leave and the idea is they're going straight to Mount Sinai to get the Torah and then they're going to Israel. They have to build the Mishkan. Okay, but a year later, they're going into Israel. And then comes the sin of the spies. And instead of going to Israel, they have to wait another 39 years, 38 and a half years. It's going to be a total of 40 years. And the generation that left Egypt will die out the generation that will enter Israel will be a new generation. I think I mentioned to you before that caused an unnatural demographic death rate so that over the course of 40 years this entire population basically stayed the same number which is something that's very unnatural. Which means, of course, that the reality of the Jewish people during 38 of those years was unfortunately, sadly, lots of death. And they had to confront death. And they had to deal with people dying in larger than natural numbers. Well, what is the Torah's ritual response to death? It's the Paraduma. So the Paraduma is, represents the beginning of the 40 years meaning like one and a half, two years into it, when there's this decree that we're not going right into Israel, but we're going to have to elongate this for 40 years. That's represented by the first narrative. And the next narrative is the first narrative at the end of the 40 years. It's the first we the Torah only tells us narratives about the first year and a couple of months and the last, let's say, about approximately year. The whole middle period, there's not a word in the Torah about what happened. Our rabbis have certain suggestions about what happened, but no narrative. So in a sense, this portion is the end of the first chapter and the beginning of the last chapter. And that's why it's placed here. It's placed here to show the transition 
between the generation that left Egypt and the generation that is going to go into Israel. But think about this for a moment from Moshe's point of view. Because Moshe starts his career in the desert with the generation that left Egypt. A generation of slaves, a generation of people who were traumatized, victimized, persecuted. Obviously, his expectations for their spiritual growth had to be realistic. I mean, how much can you expect people who have a 200-year history of slavery and persecution, etc., to be able to develop notions of spirituality and idealism and freedom? There's a, a realistic expectation. By the time you get to the end, it's a new generation. Now, this is a generation that was raised, born and raised in freedom, in spirituality, in God's presence, under Moshe's leadership. His expectations of them are much higher. There has to be some improvement to living for 40 years with God's presence literally visible in front of you every day and every night. There's got to be some development by being led by someone like Moshe and Aaron and Miriam that has got to show up different than being slaves in Egypt. And, and, and that's the, the personal reason why Moshe is so disappointed. Because here we are at the end of 40 years. You, for 40 years, God has been taking care of you. And anytime there's been a problem, He's produced a miracle. And one way or another, you've made it. And now, I understand it looks like you don't see where the water's coming from. But do you think, after 39 years, God forgot about you? He forgot that He turned off the... A few times in my life, I've had a, a medical test different kinds of tests where the doctor will say, Look, breathe in, hold your breath. Now breathe out. I always think to myself, what if he forgets to tell me to... I'm sitting here holding my breath. He could just, you know... You think God's going to forget that we're thirsty? And Moshe is so disappointed. Please turn to page 844. Top of the page. Pasuk number Yud, number 10. Vayakhilu Moshe va'aron hasakahol el p'nei hasola. Moshe and Aaron gather the entire Jewish people to this rock that God commanded him to speak to. And he says, Vayomalem, and he says to them, Shimuna Amorim, listen, you rebellious, ungrateful, Immature babies. I'm going to bring you water from this rock. You're complaining. You're rebelling. You're upset. Don't you yet have any faith? Has there been no spiritual growth after 40 years? Can you imagine? You're teaching somebody for 40 years and then you ask them, what's 2 plus 2? Ah, I forgot. 
nothing you learned in 40 years? And Moshe just, it just eats him up. And his disappointment is so visceral. Shimu nahamorim, listen, you rebellious people. Our sages say, one answer to the question, what was Moshe's sin? Hitting the rock instead of speaking the rock, listen, I'll tell you the truth. I think hitting a rock and getting water is a pretty neat miracle by itself. Is it a bigger miracle to hit the rock rather than to speak to the rock? Was that really the issue? So some of our commentators say, no, that's not the issue. This is the issue. Moshe lost his temper. Shimunaha Morim. Listen, you rebellious people. Listen, you ungrateful people. That's not how a leader is supposed to speak. And because Moshe belittled the Jewish people, God said, you're not the right person to take them in. In other words, this is not so much a punishment as it is a recognition that Moshe had reached a point in his life when there was a rift between himself and the Jewish people. And so God's response was not just as some commentators explain, well, the greater the person, the greater the sin. So even a slight uh, word that is improper for someone like me, it would be no big deal. But for someone like Moshe, even the slightest word, I mean, that's a little hard to understand. One word, one, one word, and, and, and he's doomed. But it's not one word. It's rather the theme of the second half of the book of Amibar. It's the theme that as we get to the end of the 40 years in the desert, there is a transformation. And there is also a breakdown. It's a breakdown in leadership. And Moshe is no longer the person who is able to empathize and to, because of his great disappointment, he's no longer able to do that. There is a rift. So it's not the sin that causes God to say, you can't go into Israel. I'm punishing you for the sin. It's rather God says, you are not the right leader that these people need to take them into Israel. I've shared this before. There's a prayer that we say on Shabbos. Right after the Haftorah, where we want to give a blessing to those people that serve the community. And we say, All of those who serve the community faithfully, God should bless them and reward them and forgive their sins and heal them and give them all kinds of blessings. Of course, it doesn't just mean somebody who serves the community. Serves the community faithfully. Be'emuna, faithfully. The word emuna can mean faithfully, like with sincerity, with, with genuine feeling. But the word emuna in its simpler meaning is 
faith, like to have faith in God. Means a leader who has faith in his community. A leader is required to have faith that his community can succeed, can do good. And if a leader loses faith in his community, then he or she is no longer capable of acting as their leader. Yes. That's fantastic, Rabbi, because that the patience until the end is to ensure that we have chesed ad hasof. Exactly. That we have the compassion until the end. He has the compassion when the, the, the when God wanted to destroy all the Israelites when he came down from Sinai. Right. He said, no, no, wipe me out. Right. But here, but no, here he doesn't have it. It, it isn't chesed ad hasof. And therefore, and there, yes, Ronnie? Yeah, I agree completely with you said at the end, but I disagree at the beginning. It's, it's not that, he, that the people haven't changed. The people have changed, and Moshe is still treating them as a nation of slaves who respond to a stick instead of a carrot. It, he's still... Okay, he's, he's I hear what you're saying. Them. I hear what you're saying. I hear, I hear he that. I hear that. But he's Robert, not a leader for Moses. Moses. I mean, he's only human, right? What's to be expected? He's exhausted. Okay. For 40 years, he's... You know, we're trying but to you know what? When you're exhausted, the, bed, the, the coach... The coach sends you to the bench. Take a break. If somebody else needs a turn. But here's the point. It was not just that there was a momentary lack of control on Moshe's part. It is rather that this was a symptom of the fact that there was a rift and that Moshe would no longer be able to sanctify God's name by leading the people. And look at the next verse. Page 844. Um, I'm sorry, two verses. Pasuk Yud Beis, number 12. Yan lohemantem bilag disheni lehnebene Israel, because you were not able to sanctify my name in the presence of all of Israel, you're not going to be able to go into the land of Israel. Some commentators look at it as a punishment, but what Rabbi Salvechik is saying is no. You are no longer able to sanctify my name in the way that you lead the people, so. You need to go to the bench and somebody else needs to come in. And that's how these two portions, uh, uh, sections of the Parsha are a synopsis of this entire 40-year period. Now, so let's get to some practical lessons. What should have happened? What positive lesson are we supposed to learn from this of how we are supposed to act in order not to make this mistake? Because the truth is that sometimes discipline is necessary. Sometimes you have to tell a person you're doing something wrong. You have to tell a person don't complain. You have to sometimes. So what are we supposed to learn about how it should have been done? So I want to share with you an insight 
a great scholar who passed away a number of years ago, Rabbi Menachem Shach. He said as follows. Look back at the top of the page. One more time, Pasuk number Yud, Pasuk number 10. Vayakilu Moshe Aaron Moshe and Aaron gather all the people around the rock and he says to them, Shimuna Amorim, listen you rebellious people, I'll be able to bring water from this rock. And then Pasuk Yud Aleph, number 11. Vayorem Moshe es Yado, Vayach es Hasela b'mateu pamayim. Moshe raises up his hand hits the rock twice, mayim rabim, and plentiful water comes out, and all the people drink water. Says Rav Shach, it was the order that was wrong. You have people that are thirsty. They are at, in a desert and they are thirsty. You can be upset with them for complaining. You can be upset with them for what appears to be their lack of faith in Hashem. And you can criticize them. First give them water. It's the order. First give them water. And then say to them, the way you went about it was not the right way. To criticize them before giving the water shows a lack of empathy for what another human being is going through. They weren't making up the fact that they were thirsty. The opposite of what he did with the, with the, the opposite. Oh, the so exact the opposite. It's the mirror. It's the mirror of what happens with at the, the beginning with the lamb. Why he became a leader in the first place. It's, it's the exact mirror of that. And, and even if a person... Is, is coming from their mistaken point of view, but it still requires of a leader to have a sense of empathy with where that person is coming from. Yes, there may be a need for criticism, constructive criticism, but the order is very important. One last lesson to learn from this. So as I said to you, <coughs> some commentators understand that Moshe's, that the reason Moshe was not able to go into the land of Israel is because he criticized the Jewish people, Shimon HaMorim. Others say it's because he hit the rock instead of speaking to the rock. God's command was speak to the rock. And instead Moshe hit the rock. So we have to understand the question that I asked before. I mean, is it such a big deal? What's the difference? Hitting the rock is still a miracle. At the beginning of the 40 years, the same thing happened and God said, hit the rock and he hit the rock. That was the beginning of the 40 years. Now, this time, the end of the 40 years, God says, take your staff. I didn't read the passage. Take your staff and speak to the rock. Well, why take the staff? Okay, so that deserves its own explanation. But again, let's just think in a very practical way. What lesson are we supposed to learn about how we are supposed to act? So here's a lesson that comes from Rabbi Moshe Feinstein. Rabbi Feinstein says, there's a very important lesson in life. 
Sometimes it is necessary to speak to a rock. Sometimes it is necessary to speak to people who are like a rock or like a wall. It's necessary. There's a phenomenon if you ever go to the Kotel in, in, in Yerushalayim, one of the things that you'll probably see is that it's very it's quite common that brides and grooms on their way to their wedding, meaning in the suit and in the wedding dress, will go to the Kotel to say a prayer and then go to their wedding. So it's Facebook. It was a joke. It was a cartoon. Facebook, there was a cartoon. It showed a bride, white wedding dress, davening, praying at the Kotel, with the caption, you better get used to talking to a wall. <laughs> All right, a little cynical, a little cynical. But please turn to page 972. Not our Parsha, but a passage that I think will be very familiar to you. Page 972, the bottom of the page. Pasuk number four, number dalet, the bottom, second to the last line. Shema Yisrael, Hashem Elokein, Hashem Echad. Listen, Hashem is one. Ve'ahavta as Hashem Elokecha, you should love Hashem with all your heart and all your soul and all your might. Turn to the next page. 974, top of the page. I want you to tell me which word is incorrect. And it should be that these words, the words of the Torah, that I'm commanding you today, should be on your heart. Wait a second. It should be in your heart. She said, El. The word should go into your heart. You go to the grocery store and you buy some ice cream. You don't put it on the freezer, you put it in the freezer. It doesn't help to put it on the freezer. You have to put it in the freezer. What good does it do to, for Hashem to give us mitzvahs to put on? You want to put in. So this is a really important lesson. There are a number of scholars that are pointing this out. And this is important in every single relationship that exists. It's not only what you say, it's when you say it. Because there are many situations where I want to say something to a person, to a group, to a community, to myself, and the other person is not ready to hear it. And it takes tremendous skill to know when is that person ready to hear what I'm able to say. Many of the arguments that occur between countries, between communities, between individuals, between different parts of myself are because I said something at the wrong moment when the person was not able to hear it. But sometimes... What you have to do is, 
You have to say something and understand the person is not capable of hearing it. So I'm not putting it in you. I'm putting it on you. Here are the words. If you can't accept it now, perhaps at some future point you'll be able to accept it. So Hashem says, here are all these commandments. There are lots of commandments. But let's be realistic. Some I can hear. Some, you know, okay, I know the lesson of Paraduma. I should accept them all. I understand that. But still, it's hard. It's, it's, It's more of a challenge. Hashem says, I'm giving you the mitzvahs. Some of them, you'll be able to internalize right now. Some of them may take a while. I'm putting it on you. Al levavecha. When you're ready, you'll be able to make use of it. And this is one of the most important lessons, especially when it comes to children, but it's every other relationship. There are so many times in life when we think that we're talking to a wall or a rock. We're talking, we're talking, we're talking, and nothing is going in. They're not listening. They're not paying attention. They're not... No response, no reaction. It's doing no good. I'm talking to a wall. But here's the truth. It does go in. Maybe not then. Maybe it just went on. But it will go in at some point. You could spend your whole life telling your children to do something and they never listen. And then at some point... You should live to merit this once in a while. You can look back. They they were paying attention. And the truth is, certainly when it comes to children, but it's every other relationship also, but certainly when it comes to children, the truth is, our children are listening to us a lot more than we think. And of course, they're watching us much more than we think. But it does go in. It does go in. And so therefore, the lesson that we're supposed to learn is don't be frustrated just because you're talking to a wall or a rock. That was what Moshe did wrong. He was frustrated because he could not get the people to listen to him. But sometimes you have to talk to a rock and to understand it'll go in when it will go in. And it will go in eventually. And and if we can keep that in mind, It is a tremendous help in every single relationship that we have.